0: On this episode of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast, we will hear a talk from Jarvis Williams of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. This talk was given at the Center's event on September 14, 2015, called Martyrdom in the Early Church, Reality and Fiction. The paper is titled, The Origin of Bishop of Ignatius' Martyr Complex. Well, if you've never heard a paper read before, here we go. I'm reading the paper. My thesis is Although there are some differences between Maccabean martyr theology and Ignatius' martyrdom, the similarities support that martyr theology was one of the traditions that shaped his martyr complex. I will support this thesis by offering a, comp- a comparative analysis of two and four Maccabees and Ignatius. I will also offer examples from Ignatius' letters that suggest his martyrdom was also influenced by Jesus' passion and the apostle Paul. First, a description of 2 Maccabees chapters 5 through 8. For those of you who don't know, by 2 Maccabees I mean this. In 2 and Fourth Maccabees, these are apocryphal works that are not inspired or not scripture, but they give us a Jewish theology of martyrdom, which I'm arguing at some level influenced Bishop Ignatius's martyr complex. The author of 2, two Maccabees presents the martyrdoms of an unknown mother and her seven sons as atoning sacrifices for the nation. After killing Eleazar in 2 Maccabees 6, Antiochus, a Gentile Hellenizer, tries to compel a mother and her seven sons to eat unlawful foods. They were faced with tortures and punishment if they disobeyed, but they nevertheless disobey Antiochus. As a result, each suffers torture and death. While encouraged by his mother to trust God as he faced the prospect of death, the seventh son echoes the cry of Daniel's three friends In the Septuagint of Daniel chapter 3, when he states that we suffer, quote, because of our own sins, end quote. The martyrs suffered for the sins of Israel's Torah disobedience, whose disobedience affected the entire nation, including the Torah-observant martyrs. Thus, in keeping with the Deuteronomic principle that obedience leads to life and disobedience leads to death, the martyrs suffered for the sins of the entire Jewish nation community. The martyrs were not sinless in 2nd and 4th Maccabees, but they were innocent of religious apostasy, unlike their Jewish kinsmen. Their suffering was a corollary of their refusal to embrace Greek culture as many of their kinsmen had begun to embrace it, and their kinsmen's acceptance of Antiochus' Hellenistic regime resulted in God's judgment of the entire nation through Antiochus. Therefore, The seventh son and the other martyrs offer themselves to God, oh yes, as sacrifices to pay for Israel's sin, which also became a payment for their sin by virtue of their membership within the nation. Now, I want to defend that. 2 Maccabees chapter 5, verses 27 to 738 supports this above above interpretation. As a result of the nation's rebellion against God's law, the temple and the land were dishonored, chapters 5 and 6. When Antiochus and Menelaus, an apostate Jewish high priest, entered the temple, they profaned it. To eradicate God's judgment against the nation, the seven sons voluntarily offered themselves to die for Israel to achieve God's forgiveness. 2 Maccabees 732 32-38 suggests that the seven son was confident that God would be katalaso, reconciled again to the nation through the martyrs' deaths, because he asserts that God will, quote, be reconciled again to his servants. 2 Maccabees 5, 1-8, 5 supports that God fulfilled the seven sons' expectation through the martyrs' deaths, for this text states that God was in fact reconciled to the nation through the martyrs, after Judas Maccabeus prays for the nation. As my friend and colleague at the University of Amsterdam, Yen Van Hitten has argued so forcefully, quote, the only possible means by which this reconciliation could have taken place between God and Israel in the context of 2 Maccabees is through the death of the Jewish martyrs, end quote. For example, while Antiochus was invading Egypt a second time, he heard that Judea was in revolt. He immediately left Egypt and seized Jerusalem while he commanded his soldiers to kill anyone whom they met along the way. Antiochus entered the holy temple and profaned it. By the way, Antiochus, if you haven't uh, figured this out yet, he's a Greek. He's He's a Hellenizer. He hates the Jews. He wants to Hellenize them and he wants them to break Torah and become Greek. He entered their temple and he desecrated it. He was oblivious that God was using him to defile the temple on account of his anger with Israel. Just as the temple suffered pollution and judgment because of the nation's sin, it also experienced God's blessings when he pardoned the nation. 2 Maccabees 520b states that God's wrath ended as a result of the martyr's deaths. I would argue, and the glory of Israel was restored to the nation, quote, by means of the reconciliation of the great God, end quote, to Mac 8, verse 5. After the author describes the other abominations that Antiochus and his companions committed, he subsequently explains why the Jews suffered so severely in the narrative. He offers this explanation immediately before he writes about the martyrdoms of Eleazar, the mother, and her seven sons. In 612-17, the author urges his readers not to be discouraged by the calamities, that had befallen the nation. By asserting that God provided the calamities for the nation's benefit. The author also states that God would soon judge the Gentile nations when they reached the full measure of their sins. But he would not deal with Israel in this way. Instead, the author says, God judges Israel, as the author wrote to Maccabees, by means of the current Hellenistic crisis and the deaths of the martyrs were representative of God's divine judgment. The author explains that God did not, therefore, relinquish his mercy from his people, nor did he forsake them, 2 Mac 6, 13-16. The author then highlights the deaths of the martyrs in 618 18-82 to, de- to demonstrate how God's mercy was achieved for the nation. 2 Mac 6, 18-85 suggests that God reveals his mercy to Israel by this way. By his, recon- by his reconciliatory acts toward the nation. Because after the seventh son promises God's future judgment of Antiochus, he states that he offers his life to God with the prayer that God would be merciful to the nation through their deaths. Subsequent to the author's presentations of the martyrs of Eliezer, the mother and her seven sons, the author immediately discusses the response of Torah's zealous Jews to their deaths. In 2 Maccabees 8, Judas Maccabeus reappears. Judas is the one after whom the book is named. and He is Israel's, one of Israel's leading guerrilla fighters, Torah zealous for the law of Moses, fighting against these Gentile Hellenizers. He and other Torah zealous Jews asked God to be merciful to the martyrs, to the temple, and to the city. They also prayed that the Lord would hear the blood of the martyrs, that he would remember the destruction of the innocent babies, that he would remember the blasphemies against his name, and that he would hate all of the evil committed against Israel, 2 Mac 8.4. In my view, the mercy of which the author speaks in 2 Mac 5.20 and in 6.12-16, the mercy for which the martyrs die in 2 Mac 7.32-38, and the mercy for which Judas prays in 8.1-4 becomes a reality when God becomes reconciled again to the nation by reversing his wrath away from the Jews and turning it against Antiochus and his army. Just read 2 Maccabees 5, 1 to 8, 5, and you'll see that point, I think, to be made. Yes, it is true, as some scholars have said, the reconciliation for which the seven son asserts that his, death, that his death and the deaths of his brothers would achieve for the nation becomes a reality for Israel after Judas's prayer. And God's glory was again restored to both the temple and the nation through their deaths after Judas's prayer. But, and I'll pause for rhetorical effect. God's reconciliation does not take place in the narrative until after the martyrs die. The argument is Judas' prayer is what affected reconciliation. I'm arguing it's both his prayer and the blood of the martyrs, you see. Second, point I talk about, 4th Maccabees. The evidence of the sacrificial nature of the martyr's deaths is more evident in 4th Maccabees. 4th Maccabees presents Eleazar as a scribe of high rank from a priestly family and an expert in the law. Antiochus urges him to disobey the Torah and to eat swine. Instead, Eleazar voluntarily chooses death. As a result, Antiochus severely tortures him As he bleeds profusely from the scourges that tore his flesh and from being pierced in his side with the spear, Eliezer prays that God would use his death to achieve three benefits for Israel. And listen carefully. Number one, mercy. Number two, satisfaction. And number three, purification. First, mercy. Mercy. In the face of death Eleazar urges God in 4 Maccabees 628 to be merciful to Israel through his death. The mercy for which he prays seems to be deliverance from God's wrath because 4 Maccabees suggests that Israel's God was pouring out his wrath upon the nation through Antiochus' persecution. Since many Jews dismissed the Torah as a way of life God's judgment of the nation through Antiochus is the reason that the nation suffers in the narrative and the reason that Eliezer requests God's mercy. Second, purification. In addition to asking God to use his death to achieve mercy and to bring satisfaction to his wrath against Israel, Eliezer also prays that God would make his blood to be Israel's purification. But just listen to that. Make, this is what he prays, Lord, make my blood to be Israel's purification. Since Eliezer has already prayed that God would bring mercy to Israel and in his wrath against Israel through his death, 628, Eliezer's request in 629 then urges God to make his death a sacrifice of atonement and a saving event for the nation. By the way, I'm not arguing that the, the texts are right <laughs> I'm arguing this is what the text says, right? That's what I'm arguing. The only sacrifice of atonement is Jesus, but I'm arguing this is what 2 and 4 Maccabees actually presents to us. Just in case you're nervous about what I'm saying. Eliezer's request supports the interpretation when he asks God to make his haima, his blood, to be Israel's purification. There's much more I can say about purification in the Septuagint and in the New Testament, but I'll move on. Third, ransom. In the final part of his prayer in, in 4 Mac 629b, Eliezer asked God to receive his death as a ransom for the nation. The term translated in the NRSV of 4 Maccabees as ransom is the Greek term antipsukon, this term also occurs in 1721. There, the term suggests that the martyrs' deaths purified and saved the nation because the author connects this term with both the nation's purification from sin and with its salvation. Furthermore, this compound, auntie, sukan occurs as two different words, auntie, taste sukes in LXX Leviticus 1711, in a context where the author discusses Yom Kippur, and the atoning function of blood on behalf of one's life. Yom Kippur is, of course, the Day of Atonement. I don't have time to defend this in detail. If you want to see my argument in detail, buy my two most recent books, one of which is called Christ Died for Our Sins. But this construction suggests that Yom Kippur is the background in front of which we should read the author's comments in Fourth Maccabees 17.21. And the construction supports that the Jewish martyrs functioned as the nation's Yom Kippur. Remember, the temple's dysfunctional in 4th Maccabees. Antiochus has desecrated, so the Jews are looking for an alternative means by which to save the nation by means of atonement. That alternative is their Torah-observant lives and deaths for the nation in the narrative. Thus, the function of Antisukkan in 629 and 1721, then, suggests that the blood of the martyrs was the required price paid to achieve both Israel's purification and salvation, just as the blood required at the Yom Kippur ritual. Consequently, the author of 4 Maccabees appears to be echoing Leviticus 16 and 17, especially the Feast of Atonement and the Yom Kippur ritual, when he discusses the martyr's death, since he repeatedly uses similar cultic language from Leviticus 16 and 17, to describe the nature of the martyrs' deaths for the nation in an atonement setting. For example, Eliezer asked God to purify Israel and to satisfy his judgment against the entire nation by means of his blood that he offers for the nation. And Leviticus 16 and 17 states that the blood was offered for the sins of the entire nation. So the martyrs are functioning as Yom Kippur. The author of 4 Maccabees interprets the martyrs' deaths to be sacrificial in nature and as a saving event for the nation in chapter 17, verses 21 to 22. So the argument that I've just made about 4 Maccabees 6, the narrator actually supports that interpretation by inserting his commentary to tell you how the martyrs are functioning in the narrative of 4 Maccabees. He describes their deaths by using the phrase, which means the propitiatory death. The term hilasteriu, or hilasterion, occurs in chapter 17, verse 22, with other cultic, or sacrificial, vocabulary. For example, sin, blood, purification. This term also occurs with a cultic concept, for example, vicarious death for sin. And this term hilasterion also occurs in context of a sociological term in 4 Maccabees 17, namely, diasotin, which means he saved. The occurrence of hilasterion in chapter 17 is certainly cultic, sacrificial, for the above reasons. But also since the term itself is part of a semantic family of hilos words that often occur in cultic contexts in the Septuagint that speak of atoning for sin. And since these words often translate from the Hebrew root kafar, which often means to atone. Furthermore, for Maccabees 17.22 and Romans 3.25, are the only places in any extant literature, to my knowledge, where an author applies Helosterion to the death of a human being in a cultic context for the benefit of another. Of course, the word occurs in numerous places in the Septuagint. It, It occurs in tabernacle context. In Exodus, it occurs in the Yom Kippur context. In Leviticus 16, and prior to Leviticus 16, it occurs. But the point I'm making is... Four Maccabees and Romans 3.25 are the only two extant texts, to my knowledge, where the term is applied to a Torah-observant Jew for the soteriological benefits of other people. You say, well, who cares? I say, well, read my recent book. (laughs) In the bookstore for $30. In my view, 4 Macs 6.28-29 speaks of the martyr's death in the context of blood, purification, and ransom. Likewise, 4Max 17, 21, and 22 speaks of the martyrs' deaths in the context of purification, ransom, blood, and salvation. Therefore, contrary to many of my colleagues in New Testament studies at the SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, I think the evidence in 4Max 6, 28, and 29, and 17, 21, and 22 suggests that the background in front of which to read the martyrs' deaths is Yom Kippur, not a pagan background not a Greek background, a good old-fashioned Jewish background. 4 max 6, 28, 29, and 17, 21, and 22, together affirm that the martyrs offered themselves to God as atonement for Israel's sin to achieve the nation's salvation because these texts use cultic language to express the martyrs' deaths were a ransom, purified the homeland, and provided salvation for the people by turning God's wrath away from Israel. So many more things I could say about that but I wanna move on and talk about Ignatius. I now turn to martyrdom in the, in the letters of Ignatius, in the, in the letters of Ignatius, selected letters. As you will see in the ensuing discussion, my comments on martyrdom in Ignatius are significantly shorter than my comments on martyrdom in 2 and 4 Maccabees. I have limited my discussion to explicit comments in his letters where he refers to his own martyrdom or to martyrdom in general. All right, everybody still with me? Yes? Thank you for your attention. I know this is not the most uh, exciting stuff, but I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> in one of his letters, Ignatius begins by, by ascribing a soteological benefit to those who endure suffering. Although he does not specifically mention martyrdom, The context suggests that martyrdom is, in fact, the background of his discussion because he states that Christians will, quote, reach God, end quote, if they endure all the abuse of the ruler of this age. Again, he states that Christians have not eternal life unless they voluntarily choose to die in Jesus' suffering. Second, Ignatius fearlessly approached the prospect of death. He volunteered and pleaded with Christians not to interfere. He wanted to receive his fate without interference so that he would participate in the resurrection. His letter to the Romans 2:2. 2, 2. His death was a willing death. He contends that his death would free him from his chains. Quote, "But if I suffer, I will be a freedman of Jesus Christ and I will rise up free in him." And quote, Letter to the Romans 4:3. Third Ignatius neither spoke, in my reading of Ignatius, and I'm open to be corrected here, he neither spoke of his martyrdom as an atonement for his sins, nor for the sins of others in the exact same way that you find into him for Maccabees. Instead, he states that his martyrdom would prove his Christianity. He thus prays that Christians would not interfere, but permit him to be eaten by the teeth of wild beasts, so that, quote, I might be found to be pure bread, end quote because through his martyrdom, he wanted to become a true disciple of Christ and experience the resurrection. Ignatius asserted that he would be a word of God by means of martyrdom, but if the Romans loved his flesh, he would be a mere voice. Martyrdom was soteriological for Ignatius. It It was salvific for Ignatius in that it proves his discipleship. It proves his discipleship. Fourth. Just as 4 Mac 629 and 1721 uses the word anti to refer to the martyrs, Ignatius applies this very same word to his own martyrdom. In his letter to Smyrna, he prays that his spirit and chains would be a, quote, ransom for you, same term as in 4 Mac. In his letter to the Ephesians, he concludes by expressing that, quote, I am a ransom for you, same word, and for those you sent to Smyrna for the honor of God, In. quote. There are certainly many discontinuities between Ignatius and 2 and 4 Maccabees. But there are a few continuities. Let me give you six. Number one, both 2 and 4 Maccabees and Ignatius suggest that martyrdom was vicarious for others. Number two, they suggest that martyrdom was a noble death. Number three, they suggest that martyrdom secures eternal life. Number four, they suggest that martyrdom secures one's participation in the resurrection. Number five, they suggest that martyrdom was mimetic. It was something that should be imitated. And number six, they suggest that martyrdom demonstrates that religious reasoning will master one's sinful passions. That's explicitly in Fourth Maccabees. So what traditions, in closing, what traditions then provided the origins of Ignatius' martyr complex? He was perhaps familiar with and at some level influenced by the enduring legacy of 2nd and 4th Maccabees in light of the similarities that I've mentioned. But I'm not arguing this is his only influence. He was also influenced, I would say, by the passion of Jesus and by the Apostle Paul. For example, he appeals to Jesus on numerous occasions as his example, and he also uses similar words that the Apostle Paul uses to talk about his own martyrdom while also talking about the fact that he, Ignatius that is, is walking in Paul's very own footsteps. Therefore, the origins of Bishop Ignatius' martyr complex were the passion of Jesus Christ, the letters of the apostle Paul, and the enduring legacy found in 2nd and 4th Maccabees about the Jewish martyrs. Thanks.